0: Going and listening to what other people are writing is important to me. Um, and then feel, you know, feel jealousy about it. And then that's a prompt for me, <laughs> like um, always to, to hear something, to hear somebody else read. And then I'm like, oh man, I'm going to go home and, and write.
1: Welcome to the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Podcast where I speak with the world's best artists in the genre of creative nonfiction. Whether they be essayists, memoirs, journalists, straight up writers, and documentary filmmakers, it don't matter. And this week for episode 55, I speak with Nikki Shulak, a writer based out of Portland, Oregon. She's a comedic writer, and her essay in Creative Nonfiction's latest issue, titled Dentistry's problem children fits the bill on the hilarity spectrum. So, in this episode, we talk about how stories come to her, how she stays attuned to the world, naked bike rides it's a thing, and the power of performing for an audience and the validation that that ushers. This is the last episode before my 37th birthday. Want to gift wrap something for me? Leave a review on iTunes. You don't have to wrap it. Best part it's free, takes less than a minute. Can't beat that, right? Let's get on with the show, but first, a word from our sponsor. This real
0: So, how did I come to this story? I think really the story came to me, which is how I think most of my stories happen is that they come to me and then I write them down. And I have friends who say, okay, not multiple friends, but I have one friend who says to me, how come all the weird stuff happens to you? And I've thought about that because I, I do, you know, I get a lot of work out of my life. A lot of my writing comes from my life and from my kids and from things that happen. And is it that Weirder things happen to me, or is it just that I pay attention, I look for things, funny things that happen in my life, and then I write them down? So I think I think that that essay started, it it's all um, it's all true. Although when I submitted it, my my boyfriend, who's a writer, said they're never going to take that piece. You know, it's comedy. Um, it's not really creative nonfiction. And I said, but it it is. It, it, it all happened just the way I I wrote it down. Um, and and that's creative nonfiction. He said, no, no, it's comedy because I I had written it originally in a different version for a show called listen to your mother. Uh, and I performed it. Um, but it had never been published. And it was a shorter version. And it and it was a piece about what we go through as parents and try to make good decisions. Each thing happened. You know, my son, Leo, really did lose his teeth at preschool falling off in a equ- piece of equipment. And we really did, you know, he really did look at shoe porn all the time and tried to get me to order him Adidas and Nike shoes and like all all the things happened but I didn't know that it was going to be a story until the last thing happened with the, the Nerf gun. And then I, cause I write everything down and I put them into folders and I'm like, well, th- these things sort of go together. I think this might become a story, but it's not until there's a climax that really happens that I feel, Oh, okay. I get it. I see the shape of the story. Now, everything that needed to happen happened and now I can put it all together. And so that's how that story happened is that each thing happened and then my background as a teacher there was the storm and I did you know we really did play the A B C swearing game and and the kid my kids tell these stories too because they they remember all these things happening to us. But but the story happened. it just happened and I recorded it. And then I edited it and 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 uh and I perhaps oh engineered it a little bit although i i really do have to say for the most part it's true
1: there's always an element of of uh shaping in in, in the personal essay too so like wh- where did you feel like in this story that you needed to to um to play with it in uh and maybe exercise some poetic license
0: <laughs> poetic license <laughs> Um, (laughs) well, I'll tell you, I was very surprised when I went through the editing process, creative nonfiction. It was wonderful. I always love being edited. Um, I wish I had an editor with me all the time, like right now. I did not anticipate that they were going to fact check my piece. That was new for me. I've never had a fact checker. So... Um, for instance, I, eh, there's a part in the story, um, where I talk about the fact that he had, uh, the, it was a premolar that, that, that was coming out. And the fact checker said very kindly, children don't have premolars. They, they just have molars. It's, it's only adults that have premolars. And I had, you know, I chose to say premolar because it was, to into my eyes, it looked like a premolar. It didn't look like a big molar. It looked like, but I didn't know, yeah, I didn't know about the architecture of a child's mouth and that, that you don't, so so I I wrote back. I said, well, it really was, it was a small molar. I would call it a premolar. And the fact checker wrote back and said, well, according to Colgate, Colgate.com, kids don't have premolars. So, you know, so then, of course, I check out. Colgate.com, and and I see exactly what they're talking about. So even though I felt premolar really was the more poetic way of putting it, I had to say, okay, you know, it was a molar. That's that's what it was. The the name of the Nerf gun. I don't have the article here in front of me, the essay, but the the essay. So it, it it did happen that we were at Freddy's and it, it was a Nerf gun that cost more than $50. I'm sure of that. But by the time I wrote the essay, I had thrown away the box. In fact, the gun was gone. Like We didn't have Nerf guns anymore in our house. So I couldn't check the actual brand or the actual name of the Nerf gun. And I had, I, and I remember when I wrote the essay, um, I was so entertained by the names of Nerf guns cause they're pretty amazing. Um, mm-hmm. that, that I created a hybrid name of a Nerf gun, um, that wasn't real. Well, it needed to be real. You know, the fact checker wanted or, the name of a real Nerf gun and I did not have it. And I ended up, I ended up calling Fred Meyer to try to find out like corporate office to find out what Nerf guns might've been for sale that year. um, that cost $50 and they're like, we have no idea, you know, (laughs) thousands and thousands of products and we just don't record things that way. And I can't tell you, and probably nobody will ever be able to tell you, what was for sale that that year on that shelf, and um, I ended up getting on to a Nerf gun chat group. That wow! It's about Nerf guns, and I found this person in Seattle, and it was an archive of a conversation of this person talking about this Nerf gun that he bought at Freddy's, um, someplace outside of Seattle. That cost about fifty, and they were on sale for fifty dollars. Everybody should go down and go down to Freddy's. Now you can get this Nerf gun for fifty bucks. So that ended up being the Nerf gun that I used in the essay. Um, the the N-Strike
1: Vulcan EBF twenty-five.
0: Uh, yes, it's for real, <laughs> and and it was, and that I'm sure that was not. I'm sure that was not actually the gun that I bought for Leo, but it was close. It was a pretty close match. And first I, they, you know, they said, Oh, they don't sell Nerf guns or they don't sell toys at Freddy's. It's a grocery store. I'm like, well, you know, some of them do sell toys. And, and then the next reply I got was, well, not for more than fifteen dollars. I'm like, no, this gun definitely was more than fifty bucks. Yeah, it was just, it was interesting to have those facts questioned, and to have to do that research to satisfy the need of a nonfiction piece. Because as a comedy writer, I I've never been asked to do that before. So that that was that was interesting. It was fun and it and obviously it's 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 inter, it's continued to entertain me
1: have you read the lifespan of a fact
0: no uh, have no. have
1: you heard of the book
0: no 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 it's it sounds great
1: yeah it's uh it's basically what it is it's this book that is the back and forth dialogue of the writer john dagata uh-huh. and uh the fact checker from I, I believe his name is uh jim finkel um yeah, I think he was fact-checking at the believer at the time. I, huh? Some of those someone have to fact-check that for oh, no. <laughs> for, for me. <laughs> um but it's this it's it, it, this complete back and forth like Degado is writing this essay about, you know, suicides in Las Vegas and he uh, was just taking he was just at times just making things up or uh, twisting uh, facts uh, to the point where he liked the sound of a certain number better in terms uh, of prose. Okay. So yeah. he was just like, I like it sounds better in the sentence, so I'm going to change it. And wow. the guy's like, you can't do that. Yeah. And, and going back and forth, it sounds like the exchange you had was far more civil. And uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of the idea. Like one, he was like the uh, the fact checker was the, on the staunch side of uh, everything has to be verifiably true. And then Dagato was like, well, this is art, and I'm going to take liberties. And it just goes that's- on and on like that for the entire book.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. Here's another one. Um, the the we're driving the Honda Odyssey to the hospital in the in my essay. Well, the truth is we don't drive, we don't have a Honda Odyssey, we have a Toyota Sienna minivan. But the Honda Odyssey was so much more poetic to me mm-hmm. than a Toyota Sienna. So I so I said Honda Odyssey. Well nobody questioned that. And, you know, and now, of course, it's public, you know, now now everybody knows that I wasn't telling the truth. You've, but got, you've been outed. you have been outed. <laughs> 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 but does it matter? You know, does that matter? I I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's with the... Something as as, as sort of trivial as that, in, in theory, it doesn't... What, what gets... What will raise pe- certain people's hackles on something like that is like, okay, well if if so and so took the a liberty with the automobile, what else could they possibly be making up? And yeah. then and then the trust erodes. Uh, so that's the slippery slope yeah. of that.
0: Well, as it says in my bio, <laughs> I am not always the most reliable narrator.
1: Exactly. But, so you're right up front, it's the disclaimer. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what something you said earlier what I, what I really liked was um you know how you allow certain things to come to you you're constantly recording things and i think that's what a lot of a lot when you watch you know, comedians at work you know that they're they have this material their Their antenna are constantly tuned to the world around them otherwise that's how they're you're gathering you've got this big big fishnet that you're just gathering all this information and i uh, used said you know you're writing a lot of this stuff down and uh, i suspect it takes a lot of patience to let some of these things develop into something that could possibly be a story and um, so how do you process all this information that you gather on the day-to-day to then to write uh, or write essays of this nature or some of your other comedic work.
0: Mm -hmm. I try to, I I mean, I always have something with me to, to record on um, a notebook. And when my kids were younger and, and I drove them around and they were in the back seat there, there was so, it was so rich. It just never stopped. The material never stopped coming. So I I recorded things throughout the day and then at night I would put it into a file in the computer. I'd type it in and I and I did that for years. And then I continued to do something like that although as as the kids got older and I had more time I would actually just carry my laptop with me and write things down as they happened. And then I would have these long files of called things like miscellaneous two um, with a date. And recently, in the last year, I, I took some time out of my writing practice to just go through these files. And I, I took everything, put them all into one big file, like every little note I had. T- taken over the last, uh, 10 to 20 years. And I had, you know, 80,000 words and I was really surprised. And some of it was, you know, a lot of it wasn't interesting, but a lot of it was, and I started to cut and paste things into, Oh, well, this belongs with this and this belongs with this, which is usually how I write is I, I will start a file that for instance, for dentists problem children, I had an ongoing file of everything that happened having to do with teeth and kept that filed because I knew it was going to become a story, but you don't know that everything is going to become a story. So a lot of it just ends up for me in a, in a big folder of stuff. And then I need to go back and organize it. I have a lot of files that that literally accumulate over the course of years, thinking this is going to become an essay, this has potential, it's not quite ready yet, I don't have quite enough to finish this story, but if I wait long enough, and I continue to live my life and and look for interesting things that happen, this story will come to an end. So like right now so t- uh Saturday is the um I don't know if you have a naked bike ride in Eugene. Well, we have a big one here. <laughs> like 10,000 people come out for this and take their clothes off and ride naked through the streets of Portland. Um and this this year will be my my fourth year doing it. Wow, nice. So I, so, of course, you know, I st- I started writing about it the first time I, I the first time I even thought about doing it, because I thought about it for a couple of years before I was actually brave enough to do it. And and this and the circumstances were right. So I've written about it for f- for four years now, although I the last year um, I didn't do it. So it's it's for various reasons. But I wrote about that, too. So now I've got four years of notes about the naked bike ride and how my life was, how, you know, what it was like each time. Cause I was a, each time I was a slightly different person. Mm. So this year, um, will be my actual fourth time riding. And I think this is going to be it. Like this is going to be the final episode to this essay that I've been working on for a long time now. Um, And I'm just sort of waiting to see what's going to happen. Is it going to happen the way I want it to happen? The way I want to create it? So, you know, because I want to have this ending. Well, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Yes. And that's exciting. Um, But I'm ready for it. I'm ready to experience it and then get it down um, and then be done with that piece.
1: What prompted you to want to do this in the first place?
0: Well, it's it's a really big deal here. And I think before, when you moved apart, I've been here 17 years. So for a few years, I heard about it. It was sort of this myth that there's this thing called the naked bike ride. But then at some point, you see it. You're out. The night that it's happening, you're having dinner or you're going to the store and all of a sudden you get cut off, you're, you're driving, you get cut off by 10,000 naked bike riders. They're mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, it's true. It, it, it's not a unicorn like there really is such a thing that happens.
1: It does exist.
0: It exists, yes. <laughs> and, and you've got the kids in the back seat and they're pointing and they're like, Mommy, why are those people, why are those, why is everybody naked? And then you, and then it's over and then you start thinking about it. You're like, would I do that? And I, so I kept thinking about it and then, and I wanted to, but it, but it, I'd never done anything like that before. And then I don't I mean I don't even bike. Um, I didn't even own a bike. <laughs> and and then this friend of mine was turning 50 and she said, I want for my 50th birthday, I want you and you know a bunch of other friends to do the naked bike ride with me. I was like, OK, I guess this is it. I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. And that, and that was the impetus. So, so we, we all did it together. It started at the art museum and, uh, down in the park blocks in Portland. Uh, it's, it's, it was not in the dark. It was still light out. It was late afternoon. Um, and people start arriving and you, and it, and before you, know, you take your clothes off. And then pretty soon, It feels weird if you see somebody who's wearing clothes. Like, what are they doing here? (laughs) And the art museum was, they were letting people in. They were charging however many articles of clothing you were wearing. So if you took it all off, you got in for free. It was crazy. It was amazing. And there's all these statues in the park blocks, and people were climbing up on the horses, the statues, the Horse statues, and they were naked and posing with the the, the various statues in, in the park. And then pretty soon, we're all taking off, and and it's you don't know the route, and we're biking over the Burnside Bridge, and then we're biking by Franz Bakery and the Truckers, or they can't do, they can't get out with their bread, but you yeah, know they're not too unhappy because they're watching all these naked people. <laughs> And then, and then I was hooked. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I can't believe I'm doing this and it's wild and, and it was exhilarating. Um, everybody cheers for you. It did not feel like there was no lasciviousness or it, it wasn't creepy at all. It was very empowering. And, and then I wanted to do it again and again. So I am I'm, I'm sort of hooked on it. And I am not probably the typical naked bike rider because I'm overweight and I'm 50, almost 50. And there's all these really beautiful bodies. Uh, but that was part of it for me, too. It's like, okay, I... I I'm going to choose to do this and I am not going to let my self stop myself, um, from, from doing this. And so the essay, the essay that is going to come out of this is really about weight and weight loss. And cause I've, I've done the naked bike ride now at a weight that I was really happy with. And now that I'm not happy with, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyhow. It doesn't matter. So it's a sort of a statement I'm making for myself. It's it's not about the shape of my body, about whether I get to get naked in public or not.
1: What would the Nikki Shulak post-bike ride tell the Nikki Shulak that was thinking about doing it?
0: It's sort of what I heard other people say to me um, when I would say, how can you do that? How can you take your clothes off and go riding naked through... The daylight in front of all these people um, and people would say to me oh it's super fun it's there's so much camaraderie and freedom and I didn't believe them it's like no it's really all about how you feel naked but you let go of that pretty quickly and also I you know I can remember saying yeah but isn't it uncomfortable um, to be on a bike without any pants on. And, and they'd say, no, not really. And I, and that's what I would say. It's like, no, it's really okay. It's not, it's not uncomfortable. Although the first year I did it, I, my friend and I had to rent bikes because we didn't own them. (laughs) Now, Now I do. Now I have a bike because of the naked bike ride. I, I now have a bike and I, and I use it. Um, I mean, I'm a fair weather biker, but I do use it. But that first year that we rented bikes and then we had to return them the next day and um, there were people waiting to rent them. And I and I said to the the woman behind the counter at the bike shop, like, oh, we had the best time. And she was going like, "Uh,
1: (laughs) 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 oh, please tell me that'll be in the essay. That's a perfect little little set piece.
0: But that's exactly the kind of note, you know, I went home and I wrote that down. Like I couldn't have made that up. I could I mean I'm sure somebody could have made it up, but I wouldn't have. But that it happened and then I was like, Oh yeah, of course I shouldn't say what we were just using the bikes for. So that goes into the note, the the, the file about naked bike ride. And there's just so many there's just so many funny things that happen when you put yourself in a position to let those things happen and take, take those kinds of risks. Um, and believe me, that was, that was a risk that was risky for me to do.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the symbolism embedded in just derobing and doing that is, is so poignant that you're just really opening yourself up in this really raw and exposing way. And, uh, and you come out the other end, like completely changed.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you do. Um, life makes those kinds of opportunities.
1: Yeah, the great comedian uh, Whitney Cummings, like she has a great line that art can't imitate life unless you have a life.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's this kind of stuff. Like It sounds like, especially if you want to lead a writing life of any kind, you do have to get outside and, and be vulnerable and be open. And it sounds like that's exactly... I don't know it's it's probably uh it's a, it's an ethos that you can tell that you live by because you're taking all these notes and you're being open to so much that's around you and you're turning it into wonderful material.
0: Yeah, it's fun too. How did, how did you develop that
1: sensibility
0: and that taste? I had very creative parents and we always had crazy stuff happening at home. Did I get this from my parents? Or is it just the way I grew up that I expected that there would be things that happened um, and to keep your eye open for them? My my dad was a good storyteller, and he was always looking for material. Things happened, and then he would tell those stories. So I think that's probably where it came from, where it started, uh, that he he was a storyteller and 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 we had eccentric an eccentric life, so there was never lack lack of material, and we kept a sense of humor about it. I think, which is a really important part of it, because otherwise it could just be tragedy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you said you you know you led an eccentric life and upbringing. Um, what is uh, define what that what that uh, is? So like. So we can see that eccentricity.
0: So I grew up on a farm in outside of Detroit. It's not rural anymore. And my father was an architect. He they he and my mom bought a farmhouse out in the country and neither of them knew anything about farming or gardening but they decided this is 1963 they decided they this is the life that they wanted to have with this this artist's life and my dad was very successful as an architect we had a very nice life and a a, a very cultured life um but we also lived out in the country the furniture the people who sold the furniture to him for for the architecture firm they would drive up the driveway like are we is this shulak and associates (laughs) (laughs) i would come running up in my bathing suit with my goat behind me from the swimming pool yeah that's my dad's office I can help you and it was just never and then the goat would would jump up on their the hood of their car and make trouble you know it it was just I I brought a pig home at one point and the pig lived in the house there there were just all kinds of interesting things happening and then other artists who would come and skinny dip or uh, my dad's business associate was uh, he was Greek and he was always making all kinds of wonderful Greek food. And he'd eye my goat and say, don't even think about about touching my goat.
1: (laughs) So what was funny to you growing up and how did you develop your comedic sensibility?
0: So in high school, I did something called forensics which is not a medical thing. It's like a competitive speaking, um, organization. And it was very big in Michigan. So I was a, and there were different categories that you could enter. And I was in the humorous category. So I, so I, I loved humor, you know, then, and if I look earlier, Like I loved Shel Silverstein as a kid. I I totally got that. And I loved Garrison Keillor as a kid like that. That was really rich, wonderful storytelling for me. But it was, I don't know, like in maybe in seventh grade, I started keeping a journal and um, about things that happened. And I, I feel like that's when I started to sort of to write things down, for instance, my dad, they said we had peacocks. Well, my dad um, decided he wanted to have peacocks. So this is before the internet. So how do you find some place where you can buy a peacock? You know, you look in the phone book. So he looked in the phone book and found this place called Peacock's Poultry, I think it was called. And he tore off, He he would always tear out the the page from the yellow pages and he'd get in the car and go and find it. So he gets to peacock's poultry and says to the farmer, I'd like to buy a peacock. Well, the, the, the farmer says well, we don't sell peacocks. <laughs> we, you know, we just sell frozen chickens. I'm, I'm Mr. Peacock. So the farmer was named Mr. Peacock. So it was Peacock's poultry. So it's like that was a story that my dad brought home and I thought it was really funny. And I wrote that in my journal, my seventh grade journal. I think that, you know, getting the reaction from the teacher that I thought it was funny and my family thought it was funny, but then to have this person read it and react to it and think it was funny, of course, made me want to keep writing funny things to get that reaction again it gives it made me happy and then I learned more about comedy when I started doing that in high school being the re, the comedic readings because I read lots of funny funny things um, and then started I was in an improv group and I, I don't know I just I think humor was was really important To, you know, I'm not talking about the tragic stuff, um, but I think that's the flip side, is that when you have tragic things happen, of which there were things, tragic things that happened, you can either go that way and be miserable, or you can, you must be Irish. I'm Jewish, and I think (laughs) it's a Jewish thing, too, making comedy out of tragedy. Um, I mean, I don't think the Jews own that, but I think it's a part of, it's, it's definitely a part of the culture. We, we had a lot of fun. We, we, there was lots of joy, um, and lots of laughter always, despite the fact that there were there were tragic things going on, you know, death and cancer and different kinds of mental diseases. You know, there's. Mm. There, that was bad stuff yeah
1: so, did your that, did your parents get get sick at a fairly young age?
0: They did, yeah, they did well they they lost a son they they had a son who died who was killed by a car in front of our farm hmm. when he was thirteen, and that was um you know pretty much as as a parent, I get that now, I mean, I thought I got it before, but now that I have my own teenagers um I get that it's a tragedy that you never recover from. So they never recovered from it, and you know they they kept going. And we, I was born after that, and um, I was sort of the the child who came after the tragedy. Um, and sometimes I think I felt like I had some kind of responsibility to be the one who brought joy after the tragedy um i mean not in a conscious way but i now looking back as an adult like i i had arrived in this family that this tragic thing had happened to but i wasn't there and it was my job to make it better um to bring back happiness to the family um and again like that wasn't something that i thought about as a kid but it's something i look back on now, so they so my parents suffered a lot because of that, and then um and then my mom got breast cancer when she was my age, just forty nine so I was twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, she survived a, a long time but um but it but eventually it did she she did die from breast cancer um and then my dad died. Just shortly after about six weeks after she died, he died
1: um, oh, sorry to hear that
0: yeah, I mean that was twenty years ago but and but i you know that's irrelevant it's a, it's it's something i it's relevant as a writer because you know what writer at my age gets to have your parents be dead? Like, you know, I don't have to worry about what they think. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I have a lot of freedom to write about them and about my childhood without worrying about what they're going to think about it. Um, and I feel like that's really opened me up to be able to feel a freedom to write about my past.
1: Yeah, because there's, there's, there's no fear of offending or... or or libeling anyone you do have an an infinitely long leash to of create infinitely long creative leash to just turn your turn yourself loose
0: yeah, although although I don't know my husband would say the same thing. <laughs> um, although he'll say, you know, you're going to write what you're going to write. But I do I do know writers who they've got lots of material and they're like if my mom would just die, I could publish this. <laughs> so
1: with with regards to your writing and wanting to become a writer. Uh do you remember a particular moment that you're like, "Oh, this is something i I want to do as a vocation
0: well i writing is not my vocation. uh teaching is my vocation mm-hmm. in terms of how you know how I make money. I'm a teacher yeah, I mean, sure, I would love to be able to make a living as a creative nonfiction writer, but i'm not I'm not there yet. And even if I don't ever get there, you know, where it's my vocation, I it's, I'm not going to stop. I mean, I can't stop. I can't not write stories, Right. but in terms of like when I first thought, huh, you know, like people do this and some people have a lot of financial success. Like it is doable. It's possible. I, but I, I came to that, I think late, late-ish. Um, I, I, I always wrote, I always had a writing practice, but it wasn't until it wasn't until I had kids, um, at age 30 that I started to finish things to not just journal and, and, and come up with ideas, but actually finish pieces. One of the the pieces that I finished, um, it wasn't when I was thirty. It was about ten years later, but it was something that came out of ten years of taking notes. I finished something and I gave it to a friend who happened to be um, an editor in a on a local literary anthology. She's like, "This is really good. You should submit this." to this anthology. I was like, Oh, really? You really think I should? Cause I'd never, I didn't know anything about submissions or, you know, that that's how it, how it gets done. She's like, yeah, this is really funny. You should definitely submit it. So I submitted it and it got in and that was my first publication in this, um, in this publication called voice catcher, which is still going. Um, and I've been an editor for it. Um, a couple of times, it's it's an amazing journal, and and it's a a, a journal where a lot of people get a first publication. So um, I just was lucky because they they used my piece as part of the publicity campa- campaign, and I got some quotes put on postcards that got set up in bookstores and um, and it's and it's a really raunchy piece about um, oh about. <sighs> waxing and um like the decision to to wax my butt hair (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't doing the the naked bike ride yet it was called the piece is called my midlife thong crisis (laughs) and I decide you know I like decided to wear a thong and then I got these new glasses and I was looking at myself in a thong and I noticed that you know that I had a lot of hair on my butt and I couldn't wear a thong without taking care of that, but I didn't know how to take care of it. So the whole piece was about sort of what builds, what built towards, um, my getting my hair waxed or actually uh, eventually laser laser treatment. But, um, you have to read it. Um,
1: (laughs) It's on the to do list now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This piece, um, it, we, it was early. Um, we have a, a literary festival here in Portland called um, Wordstock. It was a pretty, you know, maybe Wordstock had only been around a couple of years, but I was invited by this magazine, by this journal, to be one of the readers. So I got to go up in front of this room full of people and read my essay. And it was so much fun because it brought back all these, um, like what I had been doing in high school with the competitive, um, uh, speaking, except for that it was my own work that I got to perform with that piece. I then went and performed with this group of female comedians in Portland, like people who are way, way ahead of me. Um, and I learned a lot from them. Um, and then, and then I was like, huh, this is really fun. And it wasn't about writing, becoming a vocation. It was just sort of like, how can I get more of this, this fun in my life where Mm -hmm. I get to write something that's my own work and then perform it in front of a group of people and they laugh and they, and then they come up to me afterwards and want to talk about it. Like it was addictive, um that cycle was addictive so it's not so much the writing it was the um the performance piece part that i loved but in order to get to the performance i had to do the work of writing so it became this wonderful cycle
1: so you you said that you've you know for for years and years um uh, whether it was you know journaling or or something else you had a a pretty good writing practice so, mm-hmm. what does that what does that look like, and what does your routine look like to, to, in when you're in that generative process, and then even as you graduate to revisions and all and rewrites. So, what does that whole package look like?
0: Mm-hmm. So, I live with a writer, and I call him the real writer because um, he he gets up at five in the morning and lights a candle and um, like really every day does this and sits his butt down in the chair and works for a few hours. Um, You know, I don't wake up, I won't wake up for hours after that. You know, he's, he's already up and he's written a chapter in whatever it is that he's working on. And um, I'm I am a uh, I'm a night writer. Um, anytime after like n- nine o'clock is really good for me, and I I suspect it has to do with I take Ambien because I have terrible insomnia, mm-hmm. um, and I think by about ten o'clock the or nine o'clock the next day it, nine o'clock in the evening the Ambien has finally worn off. And so then I can write, <laughs> huh. um, like generate new stuff, but editing I can do during the day editing. I can do anytime in the morning, um, in the car at the traffic light. Um, you know, I love that part, but the, the generating new material for me happens at night. And sometimes I, you know, if I, if I can see that I've got all the components of an essay that are they're all there. But now I have to do the organizing, I have to figure out the order, I have to figure out what stays what doesn't. That's when I will lock myself in a room for a day and not let myself out until I finish that. Because that's, that's the part that um, is I, you know, I know that it's coming, I know that it's so close to done at that point, um, to, to be able to have a first draft. But it's a really hard point for me, where I've got everything, I've got pages and pages and pages, and I have to figure out how it all goes together.
1: What's your favorite part, or the part of the process that is most appeals to you?
0: It's the revi- yeah, I prefer the revision part. Um, well, I guess there's two parts I like. I like the living part, like the doing part, the the ex- having the experience part that generates the material and writing that down. And then I like the part when all those experiences are written down in a pretty good way. (laughs) And they're ready to be refined. But it's that part in the middle where you've got all the stuff, and it's a mess. And it's like torture, trying to figure out how to put it all together. But I know there's going to be a reward. So it's worth doing. But that's the part that is hard. And can take a long time for me.
1: And Jessica Abel, who is um, on the podcast, uh, the episode last week of uh, fifty three, uh, she wrote this great book called uh, "Growing Gills," which is about mm-hmm. creative focus. And um, she also wrote a great. She's a cartoonist, and she wrote a great um, sort of black and white graphic book about the called "Out on the Wire," about the uh, Masters of Narrative radio storytelling. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: a lot of them, uh, while not using... It, it was Jad Abumrad from Radio Lab who coined the term uh, the Dark Forest, but all of them experience what is called the Dark Forest, where they get to this point in the research or in the experience or in the revisions, and it, there's no way out. You don't know how you're going to get out of it. You're so deep and so embedded that it just seems there's no light but as jessica writes like when you're in the dark far- forest that's where the where you're growing uh-huh. and and you'll eventually get out you just kind of have to like lean into it and embrace that darkness
0: yeah and, and
1: work your way out
0: i love that i mean that's just exactly what it's like and i think that i do trust at this point that it happens but it takes Sometimes it just takes a long time, and sometimes you have to put it away. For me, I have to put it away because it gets so dark.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I was, uh, you know, in speaking with uh, essays, uh, Mary Heather Noble, like her essay that from a couple episode, a couple episodes, a couple issues of Creative Nonfiction ago. It was uh, the eulogy of an owl or eulogy for an owl, and it was an essay that she put in a drawer for a long time. It just it wasn't right yet. Yeah. And and then sometimes it just, it has to sit and gestate yeah. and, you know, there's value in the drawer and uh, it it's, it's takes it, you were alluding to it earlier with this, you know, with patience yeah. and, um, there's a lot of value to that. And, uh, like how, how have you been able to cultivate that patience and to say like this piece is, I know it's, I know there's something good, but it needs to be put into, it's a seed that needs to go in the ground for a little while.
0: When I first started writing, I thought that I had to start and then finish something. Once I built up enough material, I knew that I could put away something and take out something else and work on that. And I think that's where I I learned to have patience. It's like, all right, this is going to get put away for a while, but look, I've got all these other things I can work on. And they all live together in the closet and, you know, who's going to get to come out of the closet today and get mm-hmm. work done? And sometimes it's comforting to to read the things that are further along, remind myself that it will, you know, I will be able to get this piece that is hard to parse right now to, a, to another place because, um, look, you did it over here. And look at this one. This one's even further along. It's not done yet, but um, so I think it's it, for me. It was getting to a point where I have enough files of stuff to work on, enough essays that are that, that have titles and need work that that I can feel like I can put something away um, because I've got other things to work on.
1: When I was speaking with uh, Melissa Chadburn um, a few months ago, she's an essayist based out of um, Los Angeles, essay journalist and so forth, novelist too. Um, she said she had heard a quote from George Saunders that uh, when he like he's getting ready to write for the day, he on his table he might have like five or six short stories just all spread out on the table. And, be, and he just walks up to it and he kind of claps his hands and says, all right. Which one of you wants to play today?
0: <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: But and but there, on the one hand too, it, it's kind of like a shiny new object syndrome. At the same time, it's like, you know, like at, maybe at what point can do you decide? All right, I can't be distracted with all the other projects, and I I do have to just finish. I do need to see this one through the finish line. Like how how do you gauge that on that spectrum of all these things to work on, and then eventually all right, this is the one that has to sprint ahead and, and, and finish.
0: I watch for submissions and contests all the time. And when I find one that fits something that I'm working on that isn't done yet, I check that date and I say, okay, you're going to be ready. You, essay are going to be ready to, for me to submit to this um, whatever it is uh, on June 25th and I'm working on something right now that's, it's, this, it's a, it's a flash essay contest. And I have a piece that I feel, um, could work that, you know, that, and so I've been working on that one a little more than the others thinking, all right, this one's going to come, this one's going to rise and I'm going to work on this. And, and I love having a deadline like that and that's, that's what gets me to finish something is, is that kind of deadline for something that needs to be submitted.
1: What practices do you put in place for yourself to sharpen the saw and, and become a better crafter of essay crafter of words? Um, just, uh, maybe just some sort of thing that you use as a, I don't know, like a warm up or a way to practice and just the way to continually improve.
0: I like to listen to people. I'm always working on listening to people's voices for di- I'm interested in dialogue. I'm interested in trying to do authentic authentic voice in dialogue. So I'm always looking, listening to how people talk and then I'll write that down. I'll just write down something that sounds like oh I would I would love to have somebody say that <laughs> just like that just the way she just said that and that can happen anywhere. Um, but I think that I you know I go I go to a lot of events. Um, we're really rich here in Portland and in reading you know you can go to a reading every night you could go to two readings a night so going and listening to what other people are writing is important to me. Um, and then feel, you know, feel jealousy about it. And then that's a prompt for me, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, always to, wow. to hear something, to hear somebody else read. And then I'm like, Oh man, I'm going to go home and, and write. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that that's healthy, but that is, <laughs> <laughs> And, and then I have my, my, my writing, um, buddies, uh, in, you know, in my writing group who count, who, who expect me to produce work to show up, to show up at the writing group with stuff to share. Um, and they, you know, they're great about calling, calling me out or to point out The things that sound great and that I should keep going here. I'm a pretty social writer and I'm always trying things out on people, like, um, telling stories and seeing the reactions that I get from people and then, and then amending things, you know, Oh, people laugh when I say this, or, you know, it may not be totally a conscious thing, but Um, but I feel like my writing often is very, so it's a very social process because I want to get people's reactions.
1: Um, It's like what you were saying about, um, you know, getting that reaction from, from the audience. It's uh, lots of, lots of comedians. That's their, that's what they, that's what draws them to the stage. And like, not that you're a comedian, but you're a comedic writer and, uh, it's that, it's an instant validation that, mm-hmm. oh, yes. wow, like that works. I got to rise. I, and they're uh-huh. howling. And I made that.
0: Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Man, nothing feels better than that.
1: Big, big thanks to Nikki Shulak coming on the show, sharing her story. Go check out her work at NikkiShulak.com. And did you know I'm recording this outro underneath a blanket? It's like a sound booth only worse. Hey, this program is produced, edited, and conducted by me, Brendan O'Meara. One last question for Nikki. How much would it cost to get my own wife to subscribe to the podcast?
0: More than $50. I'm sure of that.
1: I'll see you right here next week for another episode of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.